morning, everybody. I'm going to ask, if you would, to turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we are going to be looking at a story from Luke's gospel as we begin this morning. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. We're going to take a little detour in our study through the Gospel of John this morning. There is an idea that I would like to explore that has presented itself to us twice in John chapter 3 alone. And I think it's worth taking our time instead of moving forward in the text to dwell on this idea a little bit. And I'd like to walk us through it this morning, hopefully in a way that will be helpful for you. The idea first presents itself in John chapter 3. Of course, verse 16, which I like we've got on one of the banners here behind us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. But then he goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you remember us talking about this? Not to condemn the world, but to what? To save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Then we're introduced to the idea yet again in John chapter 3. The first was in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. This is in the context of what John the Baptist has to say about Jesus. In verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And it's worth spending some time, I think, dwelling on this idea as it's presented to us here before we go any further into the gospel. And I'm going to ask a series of questions this morning. And the first one is this, why do I need to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? And I would like for you to ask the same question. Why do I, not me, you, not I, me, I, you, you're the I, you got it? Okay, why do I, you, need to be saved? Make this a personal question. And some of you already have an answer ready for this. Some of you might be struggling with this question. Why do I need to be saved? There's this very interesting encounter Jesus has with the Israelites in John chapter 8. We're not going to read all of it. We'll we'll do that later on when we get to John chapter 8. But Jesus tells him, he says, if you abide in my word, then you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth And how's the rest of it go? And the truth will set you free. Ultimately, it's an offer of freedom. And what's so interesting is the way that those people react to this offer of freedom. They take offense at what Jesus is saying. And this is their reaction in John 8, verses 31 through 33. Listen to how they react to this. They answered him. We are Abraham's descendants 
and have never been slaves of anyone. Now hold the phone. How do the Israelite people say that with a straight face? Have they been enslaved to anyone in their history? Anybody read the book of Exodus before? Familiar with that story? At the time they're saying this, there is a garrison of Roman guards positioned at the temple. And they're saying this with a straight face. It just illustrates how silly we can be sometimes when we take offense at the things that God says to us. I'm offering you freedom. We don't need freedom. How can you say that we shall be set free? What you're offering us is something we don't need to begin with. So when Jesus says, I've come to offer you salvation, I've come to save you, if our offense at that is, I don't need saving to begin with, then we're never going to take seriously what he has to say to us. There is, of course, an application in this for us today, the same offer of freedom. Think about what we're celebrating as a country this very weekend, tomorrow, in fact. And imagine Jesus appearing to us for the first time today in our cultural context and standing up and offering us freedom. And what would our reaction to that be? It would be the same offense, wouldn't it? And we would say with a straight face, never in the history of the world have there been a freer people than we are today. And of course, on this weekend, we measure very carefully the unbelievable cost of that freedom, don't we? And so we would take offense at that. So it's not fair to look at the Israelites and say, oh, that's ridiculous, when we, in fact, would probably do the same thing. I just want you to think about this for a minute. That sometimes the very things that we need the most are the things we take offense at when they're offered to us because we don't truly understand our situation. And I think for many people today, that is the case when it comes to any conversation about Jesus framed as a Savior. Jesus saves. Well, cool, but I don't need that. So what does that have to do with me? The world needs saving. Anybody agree with that statement? I think most people, I think even the most secular people among us would give a hearty amen to that statement. We realize that something has gone wrong with the world. And many people today have something that they zero in on. Of all the things that are wrong with the world, this is the thing most wrong with the world. The looming climate crisis is the thing most wrong with the world, and we've got to solve this or else the world will be lost. The threat of nuclear war is the thing most wrong with the world, and we've got to solve this or the world might be lost. Global hunger is the thing most wrong with the world. Overpopulation is the thing most wrong with the world. Dallas Cowboy fans are the thing most wrong with the world. Whatever it is, there's something that is most wrong with the world, right? Everybody's got their thing. And we all recognize this world is headed towards disaster if someone doesn't intervene and make things right. I know the older generation today can get awful, awfully critical of the younger generation. And that happened to you, older generation, when you were the younger generation, right? But we get upset with young people today because they're so passionate about things that they want to fix. We think, oh, you're wasting your time. I'm glad that they're passionate about the things that they want to fix. I'm glad that they see faults in this world. Because I want them to see faults in this world. Jesus wants them to see faults in this world. But here's where we go wrong. We heartily acknowledge the world needs saving. But I don't need saving. The world needs saving. I don't need saving. I am part of the solution, not the problem. 
sounds an awful lot like the publican that was praying. Thank you, God, for not making me like everybody else who's a part of the problem and making me like I am part of the solution. I say the right things. I champion the right causes. I eat the right foods. I drive the right cars. I do all the right things. And so it's everybody else who needs help because I am part of the solution. It's this lack of humility that causes us to take offense at what Jesus really came to do. And so I want to ask you this question more than anything else this morning as we go through this lesson. I want you to be thinking about this. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? Just think about that question. In Romans chapter 1, we referenced this last week. I'd like to spend some time in Romans this morning. And it's going to be one of those lessons where we kind of quickly move through a text. My hope is that you will spend some more time in it on your own this week. And so if you've got something to write with, I would encourage you to take some notes this morning. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is what Paul says. Follow along if you would. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves their due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And we read that section, and a lot of us are saying, yeah, get them, Paul. Amen. All those corrupt people in the world ruining everything around us. Go get them, Paul. And again, we separate ourselves from what God is condemning here. We think, I'm glad he called those people out, and I'm equally glad that I am not one of them. But then look at what Paul does in the very next section of Scripture. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, and this is along with what we were talking about in class and the Sermon on the Mount this morning. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning 
yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now you might be saying, I don't commit some of those things. I don't do all of those things, but some of them you're guilty of. I promise you. This is what we do when we read this text. We highlight some of what we think to be the most egregious sins. We especially like to focus in on those sins that are sexual in nature. See, finally, we've got, we've got that passage that condemns all the sexual perversion in the world around us, and we like to point that out, but then we get into the latter half of that list of things, and this isn't exhaustive. This is just Paul riffing off of the sinfulness of man. This is where it goes in humanity when we turn away from our God, and we end up with things like they disobey their parents. Disobedience of parents is mentioned in the same breath is acts of homosexuality. Now, one of those we like to condemn in the church. The other one we don't talk so much about, right? The point being, all of us are guilty of at least one of these things. The purpose of this is not to separate those who got it right from those who got it wrong. It's to lump us all together as those who have deviated from the path God set before us. And Paul is making it clear when you stand apart from this text and you point your finger at others and you use it as a means to justify condemnation towards them, you are bringing judgment upon yourself because you have, in fact, done some of the very same things that you condemn in others. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you are going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you show contempt for the richness of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance, away from these things, and back to him? And then he says this in verse 5. But because of the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath again for yourselves in the day of judgment, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We love the idea of God's wrath as a consequence of his judgment, when it means that we stand justified and our enemies experience God's wrath. We love that idea, that one day God's judgment will come upon the earth and all those I deem enemies will have to stand before the judgment seat of God and face his wrath. What we don't love is when we have to answer to that same judgment and that same wrath. Now it becomes a terrifying proposition. Like the Hebrew author said, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. We don't like that idea. We like this passage when it's about everyone else. We don't like it if it has anything to say to us. But Paul is speaking directly to us in this passage. And so he mentions verse 5, but then he goes on, verses 6 through 10, God will repay each person according to what they have done. I want you to hold on to that statement for a minute. God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing or in, in good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show what? favoritism. And so when judgment comes and I stand before the judgment seat of God, I will have to answer for the things I've done. If I've done good, if I've persisted in doing good, 
then I go on to life. If I've done evil, I go on to death. But what if, just hear me out here, what if we've all in fact done evil? And if we stand before that judgment seat of God based only on the merits of our own doing good, what if we all end up falling short? What if we all end up answering for the evil that we've done? Then what? If God's judgment is impartial and he will pay me back for what I've done, then what kind of judgment can I expect? We have this way of looking at our own lives through rose-tinted glasses, don't we? I've done a lot of good in my life. So I can't wait for judgment so I can heap that pile of goodness at the feet of my God and show him just how much I deserve his mercy and his salvation. Nope. If I have to answer for the things I've done before my God on judgment, I'm terrified of that proposition. I've sought good in my life, but I have in fact done evil more times than I'd like to be reminded of. Thank you very much. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to come to terms with. So he goes on in chapter 2 in verse 12, and he says this, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. You ready to have your secrets exposed before your Creator? Here's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. Jews won't be saved because of the privilege of having received the law. They don't get to stand before God and say, yes, but we're the people who got the law. So therefore, we're saved. Paul's point is, no, you fell short of the law. So that's no privilege. And Gentiles aren't privileged. They won't be saved because of their ignorance of the law. They don't get to stand before the judgment seat of God and say, ah, we've never even heard of the law, so there you have it. He says, no, God wrote on your conscience the difference between evil and good. And when you violated your own conscience, you verified that the law was good. And so either way, you've fallen short, haven't you? Deuteronomy chapter 9, speaking of privilege, here's one you might want to write down and look at later. God, through Moses, is addressing the people of Israel, preparing them for what's about to happen. They're finally going to lay hold of that land God promised them. But in order for them to do that, they have to cross the river into Canaan, and they have to defeat a people more numerous and bigger and scarier and stronger than they are. And God tells them, understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because in fact you are a stiff-necked people he did not want them to acquire that land and then look back in retrospect and say look what we accomplished he wanted them to understand clearly God has done this for you and every good thing you have is because I have given it to you don't start to pound your chest in arrogance pound it in humility acknowledging that you are a stiff-necked people, that you are a rebellious people, that you have fallen short 
of everything I have asked you to do. And the reason you're about to receive this land is not because of your own righteousness, but because of mine. This is what God wants them to understand. And I would ask you to spend some time thinking about that this morning. So let me get back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. So skip over to chapter 3 and verse 9. So what do we do with all of this that Paul is having us think about? And he asks the question himself in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Are any of us in a privileged position when it comes to standing before God at the judgment? Not at all, his response is. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then Paul grabs different scriptures from the Hebrew Bible and he strings them together in this list of quotations to make a point. And he says, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a humbling passage to have to come face to face with. And so maybe it's a good time to ask the question again. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? Think about what Paul just told us here. Let me ask you another question. Help us make sense of all this. Are you a tall person? Maybe that's an easier question, a little less existential. You don't have to uh, have a personal identity crisis here as you're trying to understand this. Are you a tall person? All right. Andy's going, yeah. Had my yearly physical this week with my doctor. I am 5 feet 10 inches Sorry, five feet ten and a quarter inches. All right, I'm not letting go of that quarter inch. I think at my age that's important, right? Five feet ten and a quarter inches. I looked it up yesterday. What is the average height of American males my age? Five feet nine. <laughs> Got it. Huh? I am tall. I'm a tall person, right? By average standards, I am a tall person. Good enough. I want to show you a picture, though. January of this year, we went to my nephew's wedding in Texas, and I got to spend some time with two of my college roommates. Happened to be brothers. I, I roomed with them both at different times. Two of my favorite guys. And uh, my brother-in-law snapped a picture of us together. <clears throat> <laughs> Am I a tall person? Well, the point is, you know, what is, your, what is your measure of standard? Standard of measure. What, what, what measuring tape are you using? Right? By what standard are you even asking the question? Am I a tall person? Well, according to average, yeah. They feel very tall in that picture. That's no trick of camera, by the way. I am a wee little man, apparently. <laughs> but I want you to think about this in relation to the question we're asking. Are you a good person? Well, compared to what? You're always going to be able to find somebody and say, that guy's done a lot worse than I have, so yeah, I'm a good person. But when measured against the standard of God's righteousness, do we fall short? 
Okay, listen to what Paul says as we go on. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. There's this idea that the law doesn't free us from sin. That was never its purpose. It just makes us more aware of it. That God is communicating to us to help us see how much we've fallen short of what He designed us for. Jesus has this way of doing the same thing. We're going to talk about it next week in John chapter 4. I'm very excited about covering that story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And we'll reference this story again next week as well. But let me just remind you of the true wee little man, Zacchaeus. Right? You remember that story? Jesus shows up in Zacchaeus' town. He's struggling to get a view. Climbs up in a sycamore tree to see him. Jesus singles him out and says, you need to hurry down because I'm coming to your house today. People are shocked. It's scandalous. And we don't know exactly what transpired, but the next thing we read is Zacchaeus' reaction to Jesus. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. All it took was an encounter with Jesus. And Zacchaeus is made so aware of his own shortcomings and his own faults in his own sin. God is working in all of us to expose us to this truth, whether it's through His Word, whether it was through the law for the Israelites, whether it's through the presence of Jesus, whether it's through the Holy Spirit working on our hearts, that we might be convicted of this same fact, that we have fallen short. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to tell us then. And I want to frame this in hope. What hope do we have then if we are left hopeless by the law, just made more aware of our own shortcomings? Where does that leave us? What hope do we have? And so this is where Paul goes in verse 21 of Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned, a lot of you know this passage, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. I want you to think about the second part of that. We've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. God, God designed us and made us and created us to walk in His glory, to share in His glory. And we chose sin over glory. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God's present, excuse me, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of the law? 
the law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Maybe a good place to end is the same place we started. Are you a good person? Are you a righteous person? On your own, can you stand before the judgment seat of your Creator and say, I have pursued your righteousness and your glory with every ounce of my being, and I stand here confident that I am worthy of you? Let's end with the same story. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. In our journey through John so far, we've talked a lot about the identity of Jesus, as this is what John is trying to get us to think about. Who is Jesus? And the answer presented to us in all the Gospel accounts, in, in all the New Testament Scripture, in fact, is the same. And sometimes it's hiding right there in plain sight. When the apostles declared Jesus the Christ, it wasn't a name. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Anointed One. It's all referencing the idea of kingship. That Jesus is in fact the king that we have been waiting for. The king promised to the Israelite people. Jesus is king. He was anointed at his baptism. He was crowned at his crucifixion. And he was raised to glory where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he rules with all authority. That's who Jesus is. What did Jesus come to do as king? He came to save. He came to save the world. But he also came to save you. And you are in need of that salvation. In Matthew chapter 1, an angel appears to Joseph, preparing him for the turning upside down of his entire world. And he says, your wife's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the child born to you, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to this young evangelist that he loves so much. And in chapter 1 he says, it is a trustworthy statement and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. Paul said that. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners 
And if right now you're feeling like the worst of them, then he's calling out to you. Are you ready for that redemption? We stand here to serve you. Are you a good person? Are you in need of salvation? Think about those questions. And if you'd like to take advantage of the gift offered freely through the one who came and took on flesh and died on your behalf, then we invite you to do that this morning. Won't you stand and let us know how we might serve you? Oh